Well, thank you for clicking on the podcast and checking it out. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we are making our way through the book of Genesis verse by verse. Now, it's been about three weeks since I released the last episode. I've had a fairly busy travel schedule. I've spent time in Indiana, Kentucky, uh, in Boston, and I've also spent some time working on a presentation on a social topic that is, in all honesty, outside of my main focus area. So I spent quite a bit of time focusing on that so that I could present it uh, to a group of folks all across the country. So I'm very excited to be able to sit down and record this episode and get back on a regular schedule. In the last episode, we discussed Noah getting drunk, as well as various interpretations as to exactly what was done to him by his son Ham while he lay in his tent. And we also discussed the curse on Ham's son Canaan, and that essentially wrapped up chapter 9. And so now we turn our attention to chapter 10. This chapter has been somewhat difficult for me in regards to exactly what to cover. And I say that because chapter 10 is essentially a genealogical history and listing. And it's what's commonly called the table of nations, meaning this is a section of Genesis that describes the the various nations that arose from the descendants of Noah and his three sons. Now, the material is not difficult to understand or comprehend or anything like that. What's difficult is deciding what to comment on without simply reading through a number of genealogies. I mean, if you're driving while listening to this podcast, I don't want you falling asleep or anything. So what I'm going to do here is something that I very rarely do, and that is to simply make a few observations without reading every verse. I mean, this is a chapter where you can read for yourself without it really requiring any sort of additional commentary. So after a few comments here in chapter 10, I'm going to jump right into chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. So chapter 10 begins in the first verse, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And so it really is as simple as that. Again, What follows is a list of the sons of Noah and the descendants after him. It's referred to as the table of nations since some believe this is where all the nations of the world can trace their beginning. And indeed, some of the names listed are definitely associated with particular people groups. Now this list of descendants contains 70 names and I don't believe that is accidental. Remember, the number 70 stands for totality and completion. So, for example, in Exodus, there are 70 descendants of Jacob. There are 70 elders of Israel. In in Luke, 70 disciples sent out. And also, the number 70 is a multiple of both 7 and 10, each of which represents completeness. So, perhaps 70 is meant to represent just a large and complete number here. The point is that it's entirely possible, maybe even probable, that the text is selective in listing descendants and purposefully lists only 70 that are representative of the totality. Notice also that not all of the 70 names are names of people, people like Japheth and Nimrod, but some of the names are people groups, such as the the Jesusites and the Amorites, or even place names, such as Egypt or Sheba. 
Rather than saying Egypt, many translations may say Mitzrayim. Although it is possible that the geographic areas and the city names got their names from the actual people. I mean, after all, that's how many of even our modern cities got their name. One other thing to keep in mind, in this table of nations, as it's called, there's no mention of people outside the known world of the ancient Near East at the time. So the Bible seems to only be interested in identifying a list of some of the known descendants of Noah and his sons and the areas that they migrated to and settled. So this doesn't intend to provide an exhaustive list of all people and people groups because the primary focus here will be theological in nature. But there is one verse that I would call your attention to and it's verse 25. So verse 25 says, And to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his name the earth was divided. Now this verse has garnered some attention for various reasons, um, and the curious portion of the verse is where it says that the, quote, the earth was divided. In fact, that's what the name Peleg means. It means division. Now some young earth advocates argue that this is a description of what happened to earth's geography after the flood. And we know at one time the earth didn't have the seven continents that we have today. Rather, it was one sort of giant supercontinent called Pangaea. And although we know that that part is correct, and modern geology and science agrees, that's about all they agree on. Young Earth advocates argue that the catastrophic geological consequences of the worldwide flood caused the breakup of the continental landmasses into what we see today, and that happened in the neighborhood of, say, less than 10,000 years ago. But modern science and plate tectonics theory has that date closer to about 175 million years ago. But when the verse says that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided, this is what some will point to as an interpretation of what that means. Another interpretation of the earth being divided this time is that this is a prophetic reference to the division of people after the Tower of Babel incident that we're going to read about momentarily. And still yet another interpretation is that this division of people is referring to the division of Peleg's descendants from those of his brother, Yotan. This interpretation is argued for due to its importance in salvation history because, as it turns out, it's Peleg's descendants through Abraham, who will be the chosen people of God, and through whom the Messiah will come. And this is an interesting thought. And there are other examples of brothers who go in opposite directions in life. I mean, we've read about Cain and Abel. You know, one walks with God, the other, not so much. Then you had Isaac and Ishmael. And here, we see the division of two brothers, one of which is the father of the line, which will usher in the promised seed of the woman, prophesied back in Genesis 3.15, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King, of course a reference to Jesus Christ. In the last verse in chapter 10, verse 32 reads, that these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. But let me finish out chapter 10 here with one interesting observation. In the list of 70 descendants, the table of nations, there's no mention of Israel. In fact, think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. There has not been a single mention of Israelites or Hebrews or Jews yet. 
I mean, there was a world of people before Abraham gets called. And this chapter once again affirms that God is the God of all people. It represents all nations as one blood and that they multiply under God's blessing. I mean, sure, God's going to call Abraham and the Israelites will be God's chosen people to bring truth to the world and share his word. But Deuteronomy 32.8 tells us, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Also, Acts 17.26 tells us, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I mean, have you ever wondered why you were born in this particular era? I mean, why were you born now rather than, say, during the Middle Ages or the 1700s or during the Civil War? Well, we just read Acts 17.26 that tells us that God determined where and when you would be born. But just as importantly, the very next two verses continue teaching us that, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him in finding. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. You see, God has a reason for you being here right now and not during some other era. I mean, perhaps God knew that this would be the era in which you would be most receptive and most responsive to his calling of you. I mean, maybe he placed you in the best possible situation for you to respond to his Holy Spirit, prompting you to seek God and to get to know him. So if you feel God reaching out to you, don't extinguish that prompting. Don't ignore it. Don't put it off. Don't rationalize or make up some excuse. Because the more often you do that, the more callous your heart will become. The more numb you will become over time and the less sensitive you'll be to God's call. Don't wait until tomorrow or next week. You may not have a tomorrow or a next week. And with that, we're going to move right into chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 read, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Remember our discussion regarding the whole earth being flooded and that the Hebrew word for earth often has different meanings depending on the context? Now, this may have meant the whole known world at the time or the people confined to this land. We just need to be mindful that this is a possibility. But the image here is that the people are united. They spoke the same language. They're united by a common language and a common vocabulary. And it's interesting that they're moving eastward. When Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, a guard was set east of Eden. Cain was banished figuratively speaking, from God's present where? To the east. And still here, what direction are people traveling? Eastward. And they settle in a place called Shinar. Shinar is essentially Mesopotamia, and it's associated with Babylon. And it's also interesting that they settled there. I mean, what was God's command back in chapter 9, verse 1? It was to fill the earth. But let's move to verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So the people began 
building. If you ever wonder why the Bible mentions that they would say, you know, let us make bricks and burn or, or bake them thoroughly, here's an interesting little tidbit for you. The building materials in Mesopotamia were different from those in Israel or Egypt. In those lands, stone was readily available, and so there was no need to make bricks. People just used stones for the foundations, and then they used mud bricks for the main structure. So this sort of burnt brick technology was never developed there because it was not necessary. But in southern Mesopotamia, stones were not really available. To use them, they had to be transported over great distances, which was obviously very expensive. But the combination of this kiln-fired brick along with bitumen made for waterproof buildings that were just as sturdy as stone. But verse 4 is where we begin to talk about the Tower of Babel. So verse 4 reads, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And here, like I said, we get to the crux of the problem. Let us build a city, make a name for ourselves, lest what? Lest we be scattered over all the earth. What was God's direction again? Back in chapter 9, verse 1, it was to fill the earth. So here, again, is a people in defiance of God's direction. But we're going to see that that's not their most serious offense. But first, let's, let's talk about what exactly it was that they were building. First of all, many people don't realize that they're not just building a tower. They're building a city too. However, it's the tower, the infamous Tower of Babel, that was their primary offense. Now regarding the tower itself, well, what exactly was it? I mean, some people just read this verse and they come to the conclusion that these people must have been at least somewhat ignorant to think that they could build a tower that would, quote, reach into heaven. But don't think for a minute these people were ignorant like that. Far from it. Most interpreters, and, you know, for good reasons, for a variety of reasons, they've identified the Tower of Babel as a ziggurat. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, what in the world is a ziggurat? Well, don't be thinking these people were ignorant. They were building ziggurats. And here we are, thousands of years later, and you still don't even know what one is. So think of a ziggurat as resembling a pyramid in shape, except that it had a stairway or a ramp that led to the top. I mean, the best thing to do, honestly, is just simply Google ziggurat. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. Just, just do a Google search and look at some examples. If you've ever been to Cancun and then you've kind of taken the trip and traveled to the Mayan ruins in Chichen Itza, you can see an amazing ziggurat there. So what was the purpose of the ziggurat? Well, they were typically dedicated to particular deities or gods. At the very top of the ziggurat was a room where some sort of shrine would be set up for the deity. As John Walton explains, the ziggurat was a structure designed to support a stairway. And this stairway was really just a visual representation of what was believed to be used by the gods to travel from one realm to the other. And at the top of the ziggurat was the, the gate of the gods, the entrance into the heavenly abode. So in summary, the Tower of Babel was a temple complex that featured a ziggurat, which was designed to make it convenient for the god to come down to his temple, receive worship from the people, and then bless them. Are you starting to see the problem now? 
You see, most people believe the primary offense of these people was simply their rebellion in settling down and not filling the earth as God commanded, and that they wanted to make a name for themselves. So they were, you know, full of pride and disobedience. And those things may be true indeed, but I don't think that was the main issue. In looking at what the function of the ziggurat was, that's where we find what the primary issue is that's going on. I mean, the function of the ziggurat assumes a particular concept of God. And people began to envision God in human terms. And the problem with that is that when you do this, then you stop trying to be like God, and instead you try to bring God down to your level, to the level of fallen humanity. I mean, this is called the anthropomorphization of God, which is simply just a long word that means to try and make something non-human more human-like. I mean, whether we do that with our pets, or a Disney character, or God. But when we do that with Disney characters or our pets, well, you know, that's cute. When we do that with God, we degrade God. It's degrading to the nature of God because it portrays him as having needs. But again, before we disparage these people for doing that, I mean, what exactly is our understanding of God? How exactly do we represent God? You know, one of the Ten Commandments is that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And many of you may be thinking, well, look, I, 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 don't, I don't curse. I never say GD. I never take the name of the Lord in vain. But this is much more than about cursing, or as we'd say in East Tennessee, cussing. It's about ambassadorship. In other words, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to be a Christian, then you need to understand that you are an ambassador of God to other people. And you better understand that if you're going to carry the banner of God, you have a responsibility to represent him accurately to the world. You better not do that in vain and misrepresent God to the rest of the world. You better not take his name in vain. You see, where we get that commandment in Exodus 27, you know, there's more that's said after that comma in the sentence or in the verse. The entire verse reads, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, comma, for the Lord would not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I think we should focus maybe a little less and emphasize a little less the whole cursing thing. I mean, not that that's a smart idea either, but focus more on how we represent God to a world which so desperately needs him right now. So let's read verses 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. How ironic that as the people were building the tower, this ziggurat for the gods to descend, that the one true God actually does descend. The problem, though, is that he certainly hasn't descended in order to bless them. Another piece of irony, 
The people said, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build a tower. And here we see God saying, let us go down. Which brings up a good question. I mean, some people have speculated who exactly is us that God's referring to and God's speaking to here. I mean, is God speaking to some angels, some of the heavenly host, or is this yet another reference to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? You know, and I've always been fascinated by verse 6, especially when people say that they'll never be able to do this, or mankind will never be able to do that, or that's impossible. Uh, and so, like, for example, some of the things that transhumanists believe, you know, some people chalk it up as fairy tales, all of it. And also some of the advances in technology and medicine or genetic engineering, and the list goes on and on. Many of these things are, or at least were, thought at one time to be impossible. But what does God say here in verse 6? He says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It literally means that all they plan to do will not be withheld from them. And the problem with that is that we know how that usually ends, which is in nothing good, which is why God confused their language. And not being able to understand one another, the building project is terminated and the people are dispersed over all the earth. You know, it's interesting here that we see God confusing the languages. But in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, we see the exact opposite. Because there, at Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit of God allow people who spoke different languages to understand each other. You see, that may have something to do with when you're inside the will of God and when you're outside the will of God. But at the end of any Bible study, you should ask yourself, I mean, what, what does this teach me about God? I mean, how does this help me understand who God is? Well, one of the things I take out of this is, look, in the end, Despite humanity's rebellion, ignorance, and pride, God's sovereign plan will be brought about. You know, I'm reminded of Isaiah 55:11, where God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the end here, we're left with, Humanity having lost any sense of who God actually is. And because they have now such a distorted concept of God, God will step in and reveal himself anew. And this new revelation will begin with God's call of Abraham, which we will discuss in the next episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week, and God bless.